people how's everybody doing today um we have quite a bit to dive into if i don't say so myself oh shit where are my stories oh thank god (laughs) my stories were not pulled up and uh that was a terrifying moment for a second i didn't know if perhaps my um perhaps my computer had deleted them and now I'm pulling them back up, but of course they're not in order because nothing can go smoothly in the world. That's uh, apparently a new law of nature that we're all abiding by. Um, hold on one second. Let me finish pulling them up. There's quite a few, so it'll take a second. 10, 11, 12, 13, and of course it's missing one because why wouldn't it? Okay. So, anyway, a um, lot of stuff to talk about today. I'll give you a quick little rundown. Um, there's an internal war going on at Twitter that we're going to touch on. Uh, you know, it's, it's in regards to that uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden story. We're going to dive into that. We have further evidence that, indeed, the government um, did know how bad COVID is, Um that's really a strong indictment on just how terrible the response was. Obama went on Pod Save America and started left punching. We have um, a record turnout so far for early voting. And when I say a record, I mean like just blown out of the water. Now, some of that is probably because of the pandemic, but also some of it is probably because it's a, you know, 
presidential election and there's a big wave and that does not bode well for Trump. Um, and then later on we have Tucker Carlson touts the endorsement of Nuwar bin Laden <laughs> because she uh, supports Trump. And so now a right-wing argument in favor of Trump is, look, we got an endorsement from a member of the bin Laden family. <laughs> I don't think that that's necessarily something you should hold up as if it's positive. Anyway, all right, so without further ado, let's get started. And uh, I'll, I'll do it with an update on what's going on over at Twitter. So it appears like there's an internal war going on at Twitter over their censorship of the New York Post article on the Bidens, namely on Hunter and Joe. Um, so we already discussed this previously, but just to you know refresh your memory a little bit, there was an article that came out which showed internal emails of Hunter Biden discussing basically leveraging um, you know, his dad's position to get paid by a Ukrainian energy company named Burisma. And, um, you know, it appears to be pretty straightforward corruption. You know, he's basically like selling access to his VP dad. And the company, of course, would do something like this because they want favoritism and they would want whatever it might be, subsidies, for example. Um, at the time, the U.S. was basically trying to orchestrate a coup in Ukraine. And so if you get in close with the people who will be in power, with the imperialist power of the United States, a, a bunch of upsides can come from it. So that company was doing what they viewed as a, a rational thing. Hey, if we hire his son, who knows nothing about energy and nothing about Ukraine, and pay him $50,000 a month, then basically that's our foot in the door to get favors from Joe Biden. Now, there are some people on the Democratic side who deny this, these are the same kinds of people who denied that there was anything corrupt going on with the Clinton Foundation. Um, for you to really believe that, you know, everything was on the up and up and a Ukrainian energy company wanted to hire Joe Biden's son for totally noble and normal reasons, you're like a partisan hack or you're, I don't even know what to say. I just think you're ridiculous because that is ridiculous. The Clinton Foundation is corrupt. What was going on with uh, the Bidens is corrupt. By the way, there was an article before Biden ever even ran for president, or before he ran this time, there's been articles, uh, and they go into details about how various members of Biden's family have cashed in on his public profile. So there's been detailed reporting on this that gives specifics. So even if you want to swat away the Ukraine thing and the Burisma thing, you got to answer for like a thousand other things that have happened where it's personal corruption and... They're profiting off of Joe Biden's name. So anyway, this article came out. But in the article, there were pictures of Hunter that were private pictures that obviously he didn't want leaked. It was on a laptop of his. Now, the origin story as to how we got this information is totally sketchy. Like, oh, he dropped off a laptop and then he never picked it up. He dropped off a laptop for repair and then never picked it up. I don't really buy that either. I think that's probably nonsense. It's likely that, you know, his, his iCloud or whatever was hacked. I mean, that's the likely scenario. But anyway, in that same article, they ran the private pictures with the internal emails. Now, my view on it is 
one of those things, it's in the public interest to know, and it's basic journalism. Just like it's journalism to report, like WikiLeaks did, on how the 2016 primary was basically stolen from Bernie Sanders and they were rigging it behind the scenes. Just like the Pentagon Papers showed that we were killing innocent civilians in Vietnam. Um, Just like WikiLeaks showed we killed innocent civilians on the ground in Iraq. And then we circled around and killed the first responders. And these were war crimes. That's what Chelsea Manning lead to Julian Assange. Like all these things are in the public interest. It's in the public interest to know about the corruption going on that the Bidens take part in. Just like it would be in the public interest to know if somebody leaked on the Trumps and their corruption and how their family's cashing in on Daddy Trump being president, I would want to know that. And so that's journalism. Journalism is, yeah, we're going to report on this thing that's in the public interest. Should they have run the private pictures, though? There, I argue no, because there's no, there's no public interest in that. You're just being a dick. You're just violating somebody's privacy in matters that have nothing to do with governance. So I wouldn't have run the private pictures. There was one where there's like a crack pipe hanging out of his mouth and he's sleeping. One in the bathtub where he's smoking a cigarette. I wouldn't have run those, but I would have run the email showing the corruption. Because one of those is in the public interest, one of them is not. I think one of those is ethical to run and it's the correct thing to do, and the other one is not ethical to run at all. So immediately Twitter basically banned tweeting this New York Post article. They banned tweeting it. And they even went further and banned people DMing it to each other. So there's no other way to describe this. This is tech censorship. And then you had Facebook said, we're going to limit the spread of the article. So they throttled it. By the way, I love, without even realizing it, there are a lot of admissions buried in here. It's an admission of an algorithm that can prioritize and deprioritize. Hmm, what does that sound like? YouTube. YouTube does, does the same thing. If you're borderline content, as they say, that's me, then they don't share your stuff to new people nearly as much. I mean, not to make it personal or anything like that, but there, there are other channels who do what we do, who we were tied with for the longest time, and then boom, they take off, and now there are hundreds of thousands of subs in front of me. How does that happen? Very simply, the algorithm. If other stuff gets shared to new people, then new people subscribe. If my stuff does not, then new people don't subscribe, or it's a lot harder for new people to find it and subscribe. And so sub-growth on this channel is a snail's pace, and that's why. But anyway, Facebook um, admitted effectively. It's like, yeah, we can prioritize and deprioritize stuff, and we're going to slow the spread of this article. Okay, so then what happened is this. Look at this. This is Jack tweeted the following our communication around our actions on the New York Post article was not great, and blocking URL sharing via tweet or DM with zero context as to why we're blocking, unacceptable. Hmm. So it seems like Jack is saying, we really should have done that, and this goes way too far, and we didn't even explain ourselves. Let me give you more from The Hill. Twitter reverses, allowing users to share controversial New York Post story. Okay. So... Is it good that they reverse? Of course. But notice, when the story was first in circulation, that's when they decided, oh, we're going to block it. And then after, every, you know, we already got the gist of it, when it's not the hot new story, then they allow it. So it's still unacceptable. They shouldn't have banned it. 
by the way, I would go as far as to say, even if you think it's fake news, you shouldn't want it banned. Because the consequences of having basically a ministry of truth determining what's acceptable and what's not acceptable at all times in the political discourse, I mean, that is, that's a terrifying thought. Because they're not going to always get it right, and they have their own biases and their own problems. And I don't know why people all understand and realize, like, they hate Mark Zuckerberg, they hate Jack at Twitter, but then they're like, and I want to give them more power to determine what I can and can't see. That is, that, that is, without a doubt, the opposite of freedom. That's what that is. Now, I know, oh, my God, Twitter's a private company. They can do what they want. Technically, that's true. But should that be the case? Should that be the case? No, not when it's the new public square, when Twitter and Facebook and the social media companies are the new public square. Of course, we should treat them as public utilities and expand the First Amendment to protect freedom of speech. You can't harass somebody. You can't dock somebody. You can't directly threaten them. But outside of that, you should be able to say whatever you want, whatever you want. So, now at the same time that Jack came out and said, you know what, we made a mistake, this was unacceptable, you know what happened? Twitter banned the follow-up story in the New York Post as well. There was a follow-up story on Hunter and Joe, this time in regards to China. And they banned that too. After Jack had already said, hey, our communication around this was bad. It's kind of unacceptable what we did. He's implying like we shouldn't have even blocked it, but if we're going to block it, we obviously need to explain ourselves as to why we're doing it, wanting you know, more transparency. But then after he said that, they banned the follow-up New York Post article on China and, and the Biden. Now, again, eventually that, that was all reversed, right? They, they flipped it back, and now you could share whatever. But what does this tell us? It tells us that when Jack is saying, hey, what we did was unacceptable, and then they do it again immediately after, basically there's a civil war going on inside Twitter. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. And you have some people inside Twitter who are really big on the, oh, my God, we need to get involved. We need to be the filters. We need to be the censors. We need to determine what is and isn't acceptable because something, something, what if it's election interference? See, there are people who think, oh, my God, this is like 2016. And just like the WikiLeaks stuff came out and people, some people reported on it, well, that, is, that ends up helping Donald Trump. And what you're doing is spreading, ready for it, Russian disinformation. Hold on, hold on, hold on. If the materials are factually accurate, who cares where it came from? Who cares where it came from? Just like, let's say we had gotten the Pentagon Papers information on our war crimes in Vietnam. Let's say we had gotten that from Russia. Does that mean that we shouldn't report on it and we shouldn't talk about it? I mean, honestly, I, I want to be kind, but you'd have to be an idiot to believe that. Forget the substance of it. Forget if it's newsworthy. Forget if it's important. Don't discuss it because of the source where maybe, maybe not where it came from. And by the way, you have some intelligence officials coming out today saying, no, 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 this, this is not from Russia. This stuff is not from Russia. So now there are others like James Clapper, who's a proven liar, who said, oh, I think it is from Russia. But see, this is the point. Like, there's a war going on within the intelligence agencies, and there's a war going on within Twitter where the whole question is, to what role do they play in the discourse? And mainstream media is trying to prod them 
to be more involved, to inject themselves, to filter, to censor, to ban, to, to sort of try to engineer the discourse that we have. And the easiest trick for them to do is to just throw a wet blanket over everything and say, Russian disinformation, so we have to ban it because if we don't, we'll be helping Russia or something. Again, the substance of it could be totally true, and they're like, well, we don't want to something-something help Russia hurt Biden, so we're not going to run it. Listen, I don't care what your opinions are on this election. You have to look at this stuff in a principled way because the chickens are going to come home to roost, and you bet your ass the groundwork that you're laying will be used against you. Do you not understand that? That's why it's so important to stand up for the, the principle here. Of course it's going to be used against you. It's like when Obama expanded the Bush security state, and then after everything was expanded, he had to hand it over to Donald Trump. So Donald Trump now has the colossal power of NSA spying. And then everybody turns around and goes, oh my God, Donald Trump is able to spy on us. This is crazy. Right. Why didn't you listen to people who were warning us about it under Obama? You didn't say anything because you liked Obama. So you thought, oh, I trust him with it. But would you trust a demagogue madman with it? Even if you think the Hunter story is fake news, it's not, by the way. But even if you think that, you still need to stand up and say, it's not okay to have Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires step in and determine what is and isn't acceptable in the public discourse. And now we know there's a war going on within Twitter where Jack is apparently, and he doesn't seem like, he's not like, I am lying, hear me roar, I'm going to correct the record on this. He's like, seems like a meek guy, a nebbish kind of guy. But he's like, hey, what we did was sort of unacceptable. And then they did the same damn thing. And so there are some people inside Twitter who are like, no, 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 it is our job to censor, to deplatform, to ban, to election engineer. And that's the thing. They're accusing others, like, oh, my God, Russian disinformation, election interference, election meddling. You're the ones who are election meddling. You are. You are, because you're saying, I don't like this story, so I'm not going to, I'm going to say we shouldn't run it, and they banned it temporarily. And by the way, the logic that they used is so broad, is so broad, and this is the main point, that this would be used to block Pentagon Papers. This would be used to block the Panama leaks about all the tax dodging, because, hey, it's private information that's been leaked. We can't allow, you know... The, the tweeting or sharing of private information like that, what if it's in the public interest? What if it's in the public interest? So this same logic is going to be used to fight against anti-war activists. This same logic is going to be used on anti-establishment voices who are exposing the truth about powerful elites. Cannot. Again, I can't stress this enough. Even if you think everything about the Hunter Biden story is fake news. You have to say, hey, Twitter, Facebook, you better take a hands-off approach. You better allow people to share it. You better do it. And by the way, the response to this needs to be not, oh, my God, we're panicking. Let's try to control the flow of the information and not allow people to see this. No, the response to this needs to be, are we really having a conversation about the Bidens being corrupt? When Donald Trump 
made $73 million from foreign investors in just a couple of years as president. Jared and Ivanka made $135 million in about two years, or no, that was 2018 alone, that was one year. They're going to make $135 million, and you're telling me there's not influence peddling going on? Trump made $73 million from foreign investors. You're telling me that, for example, none of that money came from Saudi Arabia, and then Trump didn't approve a multi-billion dollar weapons deal for them as a result of that, as a result of them paying him. That all has definitely happened. This is the response. This is the response. Not, oh my God, Hunter's not corrupt. Joe Biden is not corrupt. And let's censor things we don't like. Terrifying, man. This is terrifying stuff. This is terrifying stuff, I'm telling you. But, listen, I was shocked they had even developed the capability to, like, let's ban specific links. And not only are we going to ban you tweeting it, you can't even DM it. Think about that. Think about how extreme that is. In secret, they developed the capacity to ban specific links. The free and open Internet as we know it is, is in trouble, if not already gone. For the millionth time, guys, be careful what you wish for, because... You just might get it, and it will absolutely come back and bite you in the ass, specifically because if you're on the left, that means you question power centers, and power centers are the ones that have their finger on that censor button. A lesson, unfortunately, not enough people have learned yet. Okay, next. We have further evidence that, indeed, Trump and his administration did know how bad COVID was well before it exploded. According to the New York Times, on February 24th, Trump's economic team privately addressed the Hoover Institution, this is a right-wing group, and implied that a COVID outbreak could prove worse than advisors were signaling to the public. AIDS appeared to be giving wealthy party donors an early warning. This is on top of the Bob Woodward phone call where we heard the audio where Trump said to him directly, early on, oh, this, this is way worse than the flu. This is worse than even your, quote, strenuous flus, as he said. And he very clearly laid out how, yeah, I'm, I'm downplaying it. Like, I'm lying. But the reason I'm doing that is because I don't want to panic people. This is also on top of we learned that the post office had developed a plan and were ready to go, sending, I believe it was five masks, reusable masks, to all Americans. They were ready to do it. 
Trump stepped in and said, no, I'm going to stop this. Because again, I don't want to panic people. Those two stories alone are beyond gigantic and are everything. And I think the, the Biden team should stress that endlessly because the reason Trump is doing so poorly in the polls is because of his abysmal failure on COVID and by extension the economy. But now we know this is again, this is like the cherry on top of the shit cake. There's a reason why they did this. Why did they get a bunch of wealthy Republican donors at the Hoover Institution? And why did they tell them, hey, here's the deal, guys, just so you know, this is going to be bad skis. Why did they do that? Money. This is exactly like Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, who sold $20 million in stock after a meeting with other Republican politicians in a January briefing, and they learned, hey, this is going to be bad. So what did she do? She dumped stocks knowing the market would dive, $20 million worth, and then also, this part is maybe even worse, she bought stocks in companies that have benefited from the pandemic. Sell the stocks that you know you're going to lose on. Buy the stocks that are going to do well in the pandemic. So they knew. They knew, they knew, they knew. And now we know it wasn't just other politicians who got the message. They met with wealthy donors and were like, just so you know, this might help you with your portfolio. Let me tell you a little bit, a little something here about your investments. This is going to be bad. This pandemic's going to be bad. So act accordingly. In other words, sell the stocks that are going to tank, buy stocks that might do well in a pandemic. They knew the entire time. They knew the entire time they were lying to the public and blocking masks from being sent to people. How is somebody supposed to feel reading this story, learning about this, when they didn't know they were lied to repeatedly, and the entire pandemic, they only got one $1,200 COVID check. And now, we'll get to these numbers later, but over 30% of the country says it's very likely I'll be evicted within the next two months. Eight million people have slipped into poverty. So as the entire country, average people across the country, are struggling, fired, or taking pay cuts, no people who died from this or who got very, very sick and are still having side effects. All those people. And you're going to tell me this is what you were doing behind closed doors? This is how you were approaching the situation? So for them, they get maximum security, knowledge, tips on what to do with their stocks. By the way, that. In theory, that's illegal, right? So they get everything they need. But they treat you with zero respect. They downplay it. They deflect. And they screw you economically. All the while, I didn't even mention, the bailouts overwhelmingly went to the corporations. You had the Fed doing a trillion dollars a day in quantitative easing to prop up the stock market. As people get laid off. 
if this doesn't radicalize you, if this doesn't open your eyes as to what's really going on in this country, I don't know what will. Because this is class war. Class war is politicians telling other politicians, make some money off this pandemic. It's going to get bad. Also with the wealthy donors, them telling wealthy donors, same thing. It's almost like it's a giant club and you ain't in it, as George Carlin famously said. That's exactly what this is. That's exactly what this is. And so now, again, I don't know how many more stories we need to show you, but this is the reality. The reality is they didn't know about the pandemic. They realized it was going to be a disaster. Even Trump did. You know, there was an argument early on, and maybe I'm naive, but there was an argument early on of like, he's just an idiot and he doesn't really know. Wrong. That's too kind to them. He's a liar. He's a nefarious liar. They are nefarious liars. They knew how bad it was going to be, and they downplayed it on purpose as they and their buddies were getting rich off of it. Getting rich off of it. In other words, they handled this in the most comic book villain way imaginable. That's the truth. That's the truth. Now, you do with that information whatever you want, but I think it's a little bit of a scandal that these are not the things that are being highlighted the most. I mean, I do think that this feeds into why Trump is so far down, because he's failed so bad on COVID. But it's even bad, it's even worse than just failing. It was nefarious. It was nefarious. Yes, it's happening. Yes, we know it's going to happen. I'm going to block the masks from being sent out, and I'm going to make sure all my buddies get rich. And if you get screwed, so be it. I don't really care that much. Okay, next. Here we go. Politico is out with an interesting new report on what's going on behind the scenes. AOC, House progressives, warn Biden on corporate hires. A letter from left-wing lawmakers and groups calls for corporate lobbyists and high-ranking executives to be shut out of a Biden administration. So, who signed it? I'm not going to give you all the names. I'll give you some. These are the ones that are prominently listed in the article. Katie Porter, Ayanna Presley, Raul Grijalva, Jamal Bowman, 39 other progressive, or excuse me, 39 progressive groups signed the letter. So all the ones that you and I know. Um, it argues that no C-suite level corporate executives, C-suit, C-suite, I've never seen that term before. So does that mean other levels of corporate executives should be able to get a position in the administration? Anyway, so certain corporate executives and corporate lobbyists, they cannot and should not have Senate-confirmed positions in a Biden administration. Okay, see, it's a little, it's, it's almost, it's too awkwardly and specifically worded for me to be comfortable because it's like, no Senate-confirmed positions. Okay, what if it's a non-Senate-confirmed position? Are you okay with it then? Now, my guess is they'd say no, but then I would follow up with, okay, then why did you write it the way you wrote it in the letter? 
listen, I'm not trying to say that the lefties in Congress were trying to use the Weasley language on purpose. I'm just saying that perhaps it is Weasley language and they, it wasn't nefarious what they did, but the language is too Weasley and too specific. Anyway, I digress from that. Let's just put that aside for a second. The general idea is, hey, no corporate executives, no lobbyists in your administration, Biden. Technically, it wasn't directly to Biden, but the, the tone was and the timing was, yeah, we're talking about Biden. Okay, so here's my question for them. No uh, corporate leaders, no lobbyists, no high-ranking executives, all that stuff in your administration, or what? Or what? That's my question for them. Or what? Or what are you going to do? I'm going to write you a letter demanding something, and then? So let's role play a little bit here. I'm Joe Biden. Hey, Mac, look here. I'm the guy who says that I'm not going to do that because we got a lot of people who are diverse from the corporate world, and so to block them out would be racist. So I'm not going to agree to your letter. And the progressives say, what? What are they going to say? What are they going to say? I'm asking seriously. I'm not, you know, I mean, I know I'm being a dick here, but at the same time, this is legit. Like, this is serious. Like, I'm genuinely curious what they would say. What's the answer? I don't, they, they have nothing to say. Because there's nothing, there's nothing attached to this. Hey, do this thing. Or what? Or what? Or what? You've already pledged your support. And you did it from early on. You did it before you got the tangible ironclad concession. Listen, I want nothing more than to be in a position where it's like it's a no-brainer to support Joe Biden enthusiastically. But you need to get stuff for that. This is, again, this isn't rocket science. I mean, these are the kinds of people who would go and negotiate for a car and they would pay over the sticker price willingly. Like, that's what this is. I mean, this is so ineffectual because there's nothing tied to your demand. So the idea is just, I'm going to send him a letter saying, please, sir, can you please do this for me? I would appreciate it very much. He's going to say no. Or what's more likely is he says nothing and he doesn't listen to it. Or he might even placate you and be like, yeah, I guess, whatever, sure. And then he does it anyway. Then he doesn't abide by it anyway. So listen, this is the problem. And honestly, I don't want to put too much stress on these progressives doing it because I think they mean well. But really, the way Bernie handled his exit from the race is just the perfect encapsulation of this pathetic philosophy in action. So all he got when he exited was, let's do some placating, condescending, pat-on-the-head unity commissions where... They don't concede that much in the first place, but even to the extent that they do concede anything, Biden's just going to ignore it. Why? Because you didn't make any of it mandatory. So I know you guys have heard me say this a thousand times, but I bring it up because nobody else talks about this kind of a solution. But what Bernie should have done is, you know, towards the end of the race, when he was about to drop out, you meet with Joe Biden and you say, Joe, listen, man, I want to support you. You know I like you. I hope you like me. 
Um, but I need something for it. Listen, I got 30% of Democratic voters locked up. You need this 30% of Democratic voters. Yes, Trump is bad. But if Trump is replaced by somebody who's going to change none of the things Trump did, then what do you want me to tell you? You need to earn our support. Here's how you earn our support. I made a list of 10 executive orders. Um, and you need to do th- promise to do these. I want your word in writing. You'll do these in the first 100 days. Um, and if you agree to it, then I'll do everything I can for you to get you elected. If you don't agree to it, I'm just going to sit out. What am I going to do? Am I going to vote for Trump or campaign for a Green Party candidate? No, I'll just sit out. I'll just sit out. I won't do rallies for you. I won't do events for you. I won't say kind words about you. I'll just say, hey, listen, we tried to make a deal. We couldn't make a deal. And so I got to sit out. I have no choice. It's on him. It's not on me. He could have done that. Now, what do I think Biden would have done? Honestly, I think it's very likely he would have said, Bernie, I see your executive order list. I want to make a deal with you. I think these go too far. You know that I'm, I'm hesitant to do a lot of the things on this list. I can't do that, those 10. But I'll do these five. Or even if he's really being a dick, I'll do these three. I can agree to these three. Whatever they may be. Bernie, there's definitely things that Joe Biden is not for, but he's, agno- he's agnostic enough on them where with the proper pressure, you can get him to do it if he feels like he has to do it to get the support. And so let's say Biden comes out, yeah, here, three executive orders, I'm going to do these three within the first 100 days. This is, my, this is my concession to the left flank of the party. This is my concession. I'll do these things, okay? And then, and then what? Then Bernie can show to his base, to all these voters who are skeptical of the system because it's so corrupt, I didn't get everything, but here are the three concrete things I got or five concrete things I got. So if you want to leave this on the table, by all means. I mean, imagine, imagine Bernie got Biden to agree to a full troop withdrawal in Iraq within the first 100 days. In writing, I will withdraw all the troops from Iraq within the first 100 days. Imagine. I would run to the polls to vote for Joe Biden, and I'd be ecstatic to do it because that is so important. Now, Bernie didn't do any of that, and so what do we get? Nothing. We get placating, unity commissions, pats on the head. And don't get mad at me for bringing this up. I'm just explaining to you the mechanics of all this stuff. If you get mad at me because I'm not sufficiently being rah-rah Biden, a cheerleader for Biden, I'm trying to explain to you how you could have gotten many rah-rah Biden people, how you could have gotten young lefties to be excited about getting to the polls. Now, everybody who's going to suck it up and do the lesser evil vote, who understands what's happening, they really know, like, I'm not actually voting for anything at all. I'm just voting against Trump against Trump. So it's not like I think I'm going to change anything for the better. I'm just effectively going to stop, you know, hemorrhaging out of my asshole. (laughs) Like I'll stop the hemorrhaging out of my asshole, but I'm not actually going to get treatment for the hemorrhaging asshole. We could stop the hemorrhaging asshole, but the long-term prognosis is that I'll probably start hemorrhaging out of my asshole again because I'm not then given the medicine to... Cure it. I like how this got super awkward. <laughs> but anyway, see, but this is the problem. And now you see the progressive lawmakers doing the same thing. Like now it's like, yeah, you should do this. And if he says no, then what? We're still going to vote for you and support you and campaign for you. By the way, there's not, like they don't even do 
like a nuanced approach to it where it's like, no, I just won't actively support you and campaign for you. Even if you end up voting for him. This is the other thing. Even if you end up voting for him, there's a giant difference, a tangible difference between I'm not even going to tell anybody I'm doing it and showing up and voting for him, or I will proactively make the case on a regular basis and try to convince my hundreds of thousands of followers, whatever, that, you know, this is what you should do. You know what I mean? Like, there's a tangible difference there. They're not even willing to use that spectrum. They're not even willing to be like, I'll just not actively push for you unless you agree to these things. So anyway, the final point is, and perhaps this is the most important point, you could write as many letters as you want saying these things, but if nothing's attached to them, nothing's going to get done. So my question is, is there any Democrat who you would say, I can't do it? I can't do it. I can't pull the lever. And this is a serious question. I'm not trying to be a dick on this one at all. Is there any Democrat where you would say, you know what? Joe Manchin is a step too far. Lieberman is a step too far. They're just too far. They're just too conservative. They're just too right wing. Because the message that they always send is, no, I will. I'm always going to fall in line. I'm always going to fall in line. So if you can get lefties to say, okay, the mass incarcerating war criminal, the guy who supported the Iraq war, which by the way is a key part of my political development, was realizing how horrendously evil and criminal the Iraq war was. A guy who voted for that. A guy who's a mass incarcerator locking up nonviolent offenders. If you can get the left to support this guy with no tangible concessions, then is there any Democrat that they would say, I just can't do it? So in other words, if George W. Bush changed his party affiliation to Democrat and ran as a Democrat against Trump, would everybody be berating lefties to say, hey, you got to shut up and fall in line? Bush is better. George W. Bush is better. George W. Bush is better. Would they do that? Would they say no to Joe Manchin? Would they say no to Joe Lieberman? I'm at, these are serious questions because I don't think they would. I think there's literally nobody that they can't trot out and dump in front of you that you would these people would pretend like, oh, yeah, here's a, here's a strongly worded letter. Aren't I so strong? It's like, well, no, because if he doesn't do it, which he's not going to, you're not going to do dick about it. So you're just like, it's like you're pretending to be serious people as you always go along to get along. Now, by the way, a final, final point. I know I probably said that a million times. I'm not even convinced my approach would work, just so you know. You know what I mean? Like, I know their approach isn't going to work because I've seen it not work a thousand times before. Do I know my approach would work? No. I'm just trying to maximize the likelihood of progressive change and get the best outcome. But is it possible that, you know, if you have your list of demands in the Bernie scenario I was describing before, that Biden agrees to it, oh, sure, I'll do this within the first 100 days, and then he also doesn't do it in that situation? I mean, that would be so incredibly brazen as to be like, I would be shocked, but it is a possibility if he makes the deal in good faith and then just goes back on it within the first hundred days and is like, yeah, I, uh, something happened and someone's in my eyes, whatever, blah, blah, I didn't do it. Like, I think there's a 70% chance he would do it if he cut the deal, but there's a 30% chance he wouldn't. Or the other possibility is if Bernie were to bring to him 
that list, executive orders in the first 100 days, is it theoretically possible that Biden would say, yeah, we're not going to do it, piss off, and then if we lose, we'll blame you, and that'll make people hate the left even more? That's possible, too. Like, Biden could just be like, even to what I think is the best strategy, it's still possible Biden could be like, yeah, I'm not going to do any of that. And if you don't campaign for me, then it'll be easy for me to blame you if slash when I lose. So I'll, I'll make people hate the left more. See, my point is, guys, there's no good answers when you're the loser. This is the, this is the point I'm trying to get across, is that there are a lot of people who think they have a silver bullet explanation to this. Like the lesser evil voter people just say, oh, my God, just vote for Joe and then we'll push him really hard on day one and move him left. That's not going to happen, and you're, I think you're hopelessly naive if you believe that. Seriously. Like, if you want to support him because he's just not as bad as Trump and you can make the case on those merits, that's fine. But don't dilute, delude yourself into thinking, oh, we'll move him left on day one. He's not going left. He is who he is. We see his record. It's crystal clear. So I think those people are deluding themselves because they're just wrong in their outlook and how things are going to unfold. But I also think a lot of the people who take the anti-lesser-evil vote position, I think they're kind of deluding themselves, too, because their idea is, oh, you know, if we make our terms clear, they have to accept it. And if they don't accept it, then they know they're going to lose, so the next time they'll accept it. They'll say, oh, we needed the left, so now we have to make a deal with them. Or... They hate you even more than they currently do, and they blame you even more than they currently do, and they move even further away from you and try to get even more right-wing people. Because that's kind of what happened in 2016. They blamed Jill Stein and Green voters for Donald Trump winning. So did that make them want to run to the Green voters to get their voters? Did that make them want to run to the left to get more people on the left to like them? No, it didn't. (laughs) <laughs> it made them run further away from the left. So in other words, there is no good answer when you're in the position that we're in, which means we just have to win. The left has to get serious about actually winning. So we're the ones in the driver's seat. We're the ones with the presidential nomination. Because then they have to bend to us. Now, no matter what we do, we lose, and we have to, one way or another, bend to them. So that's why, you know, unfortunately, the way everything unfolded with Bernie was so heartbreaking. And it's not just Bernie's fault, but some of it is Bernie's fault. And yes, some of it is the evil establishment coalescing behind the scenes with Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar. We've been through it a million times. Elizabeth Warren staying in and taking the votes. There's a million things we could say, but we have to get serious about winning because when you win, then you're in the driver's seat. If you don't win, then you're always seemingly negotiating against yourself. And I'm here to tell you there is no silver bullet. There is no good answer now that Biden's the nominee. So it's a lose-lose, and don't let anybody tell you differently, where they pretend like, oh, no, we'll win if we just do this. The only way you win is if you win. Capiche? Okay. All right, now we're going to talk about Barack Obama. 
Barack Obama went on Pod Save America, and um, this was nominally to campaign for Biden, but he managed to slip in some blaming of the voters for his own shortcomings. Watch. I differ with Bernie uh, and even Elizabeth in, 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 our, uh, in how we talk about this stuff publicly. Most of the time when I didn't get something progressive done while I was president, it wasn't because uh, I was getting donations from some special interest or corporation. It wasn't because, you know, there were a bunch of lobbyists whispering in my ear. It was because I didn't, I, I didn't have votes. And I, I, I think sometimes we, we uh, attribute the failure of a Democratic or pro, uh, uh, progressive president uh, not getting something done to somehow he, uh, he, and hopefully at some point she, is being influenced by these other folks, when in fact it's just that we don't yet have the votes and the clout. So, Progressives, you, if you want progressive legislation, get out there and keep working after the president is elected. It, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but you guys know how frustrated I would be when progressives, feeling frustrated, would then sit out the midterms. Now I have fewer Democratic votes. Now I've lost the House. Now I've lost the Senate. There's so much to say about this. He's frustrated when progressives sat out the midterms and he lost more votes. Maybe it's time for a little introspection, President Obama. Why do you think they sat out the midterms? Why do you think they did that? Perhaps they did that because you weren't delivering on nearly enough, and you weren't doing things that were popular. Maybe if you did those things, maybe if you tried to do those things, maybe if you notched some victories, then they would come out for you. See, he's blaming the voters. He's blaming the voters, namely the progressive base. Why didn't you come out for me in the midterms? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because you had a supermajority and you gave us a Republican health care plan. Maybe that has something to do with it. You had a supermajority, and you gave us the health care plan of the right-wing think tank, the Heritage Foundation, a plan that was originally Mitt Romney's plan, a plan that was supported by Chuck Grassley and Newt Gingrich. That's what you gave us. You kept the for-profit health insurance companies in control. When you had a supermajority, you want to know why people didn't come out to vote for you in the midterms? Maybe it's because you ran on ending the wars and you continued the wars. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. You ran as an anti-war candidate, and then you increased drone usage, and you did a surge in Afghanistan. You said you would protect whistleblowers, and then you didn't. You continued George W. Bush's illegal, unconstitutional NSA spying when you're a constitutional law professor. Maybe that's why they didn't come out for you, because you didn't deliver enough tangible stuff. Now, listen, am I 
saying everything he did was bad. No, of course not. I love the Iran deal. I love the, the peace agreement with Cuba that we had. In the second term, he started freeing many nonviolent drug offenders. That was positive. I'll give credit where credit is due, but who are we kidding? My dude, you're a corporatist. You're center-right. In fact, you're so center-right, you've admitted that in interviews before. You say, who, me? I mean, uh, with my politics, I'm basically like a moderate Republican of the 1980s. Oh, you are. So then how about you stop blaming lefties for not showing up for you because you're admitting that you ideologically disagree with the lefties. You're admitting it. You're admitting it. Now, when it's inconvenient, you pretend like you never said that and that those are not your beliefs, but we see the truth. We know the truth. Nobody's more educated on politics than left-wing activists. You're not going to be able to BS us with this nonsense. So there's no introspection. There's no like, wow, what did I do that may have led to the turnout not being that great in the midterms? What did I do? Or what did I not do? Again, the best example is ending the wars. He could have just ended all the wars. You're the commander-in-chief. You don't need Congress blocking you means Dickie McGee's act. There is no blocking. You're the commander-in-chief. You can plot the troops today if you want to, when he was there, obviously. But he didn't do it. Trump's about to learn this lesson, too. Oh, you ran on ending the wars and you continued them? Well, when you don't win re-election, which is likely the case with Trump, although you never know, but look at that as one of the reasons why. You said you were going to do X, you didn't do X, and then you berate the voters? Please, please. Then there's another point there. He basically says, listen, if you want progressive legislation, keep pressuring us after the election. When we pressure you, you say, oh, you're helping Republicans. When we pressure you, you say, oh, look at this purity tester with their litmus tests. And now, and he, he says, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. When we pressure you, you hate it when we're pressuring you, and you tell us to stop pressuring you. Now, you make this weaselly pitch of like, just shut up and vote for Joe, and then after pressure him. They're so full of shit. So full of shit. He's a chameleon. He'll pretend like, oh, me, I was just a lefty, and I was just hamstrung the whole time, and like, you know, it was everybody else's fault. And then the other half of the time when he's being honest, I'll say, yeah, I'm a moderate Republican, basically. The part at the beginning is infuriating, too. He says, you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I disagree with, notice the, the wording here. I disagree with the way they talk about this publicly. And then he brings up money and politics. And he's like, hey, money doesn't impact me or the Democrats. I mean, it just, I just couldn't get the votes. It's not the money. It's the fact they didn't have the votes to get these things done. Barack Obama hired a number of people in his cabinet from an email from Citigroup. I wish I was kidding. I'm not kidding. Barack Obama bailed out Wall Street. He was, at the time, he had taken the most money from Wall Street of any candidate ever. What's the first, the very first news story after Obama got out of office? The very first news story we saw with him in it. He took, I believe it was a $400,000 payday to give a speech on Wall Street. Why do you think they're paying him? Why do you think they're paying him? That's paid back for what he did as president when he propped them up. He gave them the bailout money with no strings attached, and then they turned around and gave money to the CEOs, bonuses to the CEOs who bankrupted their own companies. And he's saying... Money doesn't impact me, or money doesn't impact Democratic politicians? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? There's a reason why you guys don't fight for, forget Medicare for all, you don't even fight for a public option. 
Why? Because they take money from the for-profit health insurance companies. So the reform they did had to keep the for-profit health insurance company profits in mind. Money doesn't impact me. Of course it does. It's human nature. Of course it does. Who you're taking your donations from is everything. So when you take money only from small-dollar donors, you're only going to represent the small-dollar donors. If you're taking money from lobbyists and corporate PACs and billionaires, you are going to represent their interests for sure. And that's what he did. That's exactly what he did. By the way, when he says, I disagree with the way Bernie and Elizabeth talk about this publicly, he's talking about, oh, they act like money in politics is nefarious. And his point is, it's really not nefarious because it's not that the money's impacting me. It's that I just didn't have the votes to get this progressive legislation done. Even, okay, this one example disproves it. He pretended to be for the public option for two and a half seconds, immediately backed off that and did the Republican health care plan. And again, this was while he had a supermajority. He says, oh, what am I supposed to do? There's nothing I could do to change it. But see, that's, that's the nefarious part. Because politics isn't this stagnant thing where everything is set in stone. Politics is fluid. So you know what you do in a situation like that? You take the blue dogs who are an issue, who don't want to back a public option or Medicare for all. You call them in your office and you say, listen, if you vote for this bill, I will make sure you get reelected. I'll personally campaign for you. The Democratic Party will fund your reelection campaign and you'll be good. If you don't vote for this, I will personally campaign against you and we'll support a primary challenger against you and we'll flood your primary opponent with all the funds in the world and we'll make sure you don't have a career in Washington, D.C. So you make your own mind up. You for it or are you against it? You for Medicare for all or are you against it? This is how you play politics. This is what Lyndon Johnson would have done. This is what FDR would have done. Barack Obama didn't do that. Why didn't Barack Obama do that? Not because he's not capable of doing it, but because he didn't want to do it. He doesn't support Medicare for all. He doesn't support a public option. He supports Mitt Romney's plan. Because like he said in his own words, I'm like an old school moderate Republican. At least that was honest when he said that. This is not honest. Blaming the base of the party. What a joke, what a joke, blaming the voters. The voters didn't turn out because they didn't see a material improvement in their lives. You also ran as an anti-outsourcing guy, and there was a lot of outsourcing under your administration, and there were more free trade deals under your administration. You were relentlessly pushing TPP during the 2016 election. As Trump was in the Rust Belt arguing against TPP, saying, I don't want your jobs to be outsourced. The Democrats are going to outsource them. Takes Zero responsibility. None. Points the finger at everybody else. Pretends like money doesn't influence politicians. It's really pathetic, man. Really pathetic. I know he has a high approval rating, but I'm absolutely convinced that people are able to separate the person from the record. Or at the very least, the high approval rating is with people who don't know enough about his record. So maybe it's ignorance. But somebody can be a likable person through and through and have a pretty bad record. And that's exactly what he is. And I really can't stand the disgusting way he talks about this stuff, taking no responsibility, no looking in the mirror, no realizing how we got somebody like Donald Trump. If you were so successful and delivered on all your promises in 2008, there wouldn't have been a Donald Trump, not even close. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more, including the economy is on the brink. Stay right there, y'all. We will be right back. 
We are back, bitch. All right, I just had my um. I just had my uh, peanut butter crackers, a little bit of breakfast real quick before we continue with our show today. And believe me when I tell you, we have a lot of stuff left. All right, here we go. All right. As the election gets closer, the economy is really not doing too well, and some would say it's on the brink. Eight million people, eight million, have slipped into poverty since May when federal aid dried up in the coronavirus pandemic. That number is from Columbia University, and there's another number, 6 million people within the past three months um, have slipped into poverty. This is from University of Chicago and Notre Dame. Now, on top of that, we just had 898,000 layoffs this month. What everybody needs to understand is, in the history of record-keeping for this, the previous record was about 800,000 jobs lost in a single month. This was back during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, in that area. Now, it is a very common thing that we have these colossal swings. Yes, there have been recent jobs reports where we gained 500,000 or a million or whatever it was, but a lot of that was due to the stimulus, which is now pretty much done. The impacts of it are done And so we're defaulting right back to COVID pandemic depression economy. And yet again, we casually destroyed the old record of number of jobs lost, 898,000 just this month. Now, beyond that, look at this. Census survey data shows 32% of people nationwide think they are very or somewhat likely to face eviction in the next two months. That number spikes to more than half of those surveyed in North Carolina and Wyoming and nearly half of all surveyed in Nevada. 32% of people nationwide, very or somewhat likely to face eviction in the next month. And they haven't gotten a stimulus agreement. They haven't made a stimulus deal. And we've talked about the specifics of it. There's a $1.8 trillion deal on the table from Trump and Mnuchin. It's not a bad deal. Nancy has rejected it. But even if Nancy accepted it, Mitch McConnell would reject it. In other words, the American people are being left out to, to dry. It is a terrifying thought when you ponder on what could happen within the next three months, four months, year, because we're already seeing the rumblings in the Republican Senate caucus that they're already starting to talk about austerity and they don't want any more stimulus. And they're already using the arguments because they expect Trump to lose 
That's the open secret among elected Republicans. They expect Trump to lose. And so if slash when Biden gets in power, up front, they want to kneecap any argument for more help for the American people. And so we have coronavirus still ripping through the country, over 215,000 Americans dead. That number's rising. We're at a, another new peak because the weather's getting cold again in the fall, and it's going to get worse as time goes by. People are losing their jobs. People who have jobs have taken pay cuts. There's no real plan to address COVID substantively, and we have this as well. 32% of people might get evicted. Now, there are some eviction protections in some states and federally, but there are loopholes that you could drive a Mack truck through, and we've discussed them on the show previously. A lot of people don't even know about if they're protected from eviction. And so we're about to see a crisis the likes of which we really haven't seen since the Great Depression. I mean, I would argue we're already kind of in that crisis, but it's about to get a hell of a lot worse. We, you know, there was one number I read a few months ago. Right now in the country, we have about 500,000 homeless people. We could see up to 28 million homeless people. 28 million. I mean, before COVID, we were already living in a country where half of workers made $30,000 a year or less. That was before COVID. 78% of workers were living paycheck to paycheck before COVID. Now it's getting worse and Washington is slamming on the brakes. Looks like you're not going to get a stimulus deal before the election. I hope that changes, but I doubt it. And now after Biden gets elected, that's why the Republicans are already starting to ease into the austerity arguments. So what they're going to do is when Biden and, and the Democrats are like, we got to do something, the Republicans are going to go, would you look at this debt and this deficit? It is so high, we can't afford to do anything else. Notice, nobody said a word. Nobody said a word about the debt or the deficit when the CARES Act was giving $5 trillion to corporations. Nobody said a word about the deficit when Trump's own tax cuts added $1.7 trillion to the deficit. Nobody said a word. Nobody said a word, and those were tax cuts for the wealthy by and large. Nobody said a word. Nobody said a word when we continued the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Nobody said a word about the debt and the deficit. So we're going to trot it out now because they don't want to do stimulus for the American people. They don't want to cut a check to the American people. And again, Nancy Pelosi's not blameless because she's not signing on to the $1.8 trillion deal either. And she keeps changing her reason as to why. But even if she did accept it, McConnell would block it. So they are going to sit around while the country burns, while people are going through immense pain and suffering and degradation and desperation. They're just going to sit around. I know I say this quite a bit, but I'm going to say it again because it's a real eye-opening experience. It'll, it'll snap a lot of people out of it. Go read Reddit Unemployment. And tell me it doesn't change your entire outlook on the world. 
I don't care. If you go into reading that and you fancy yourself a fiscal conservative, you'll come out of it saying, I'm an idiot. I don't know why I would ever, like, obviously we should prioritize helping these people pretty much above everything else. Like, what is a government for if not to be that safety net of last resort? What's a government for? What's a government for? The immense pain that's out there. Just like I, I always say to people, and somebody else had said this to me too, and I think it's true. If you read any of Chomsky's books on foreign policy, you could go into the book being, you know, like a wishy-washy centrist, perceive yourself that way, and you'll come out of the book saying, oh my God, this is, I'm, I'm a hardcore anti-imperialist. This is crazy. Because it just, it tells, it reminds you and tells you stuff you didn't know. And when you learn it, there's no going back about the way the U.S. acts around the world with our foreign policy. Now we're in a similar situation, but it's with, if you read Reddit Unemployment and you think about the way the economy works, you'll be like, oh my God, it's even worse than I thought. And we need to do something and we need to do it now. I always say, Medicare for All and UBI is where you have to start. If you do Medicare for All and UBI, that alone would solve so many problems and save so many lives, cut so much poverty. That's where you start, and then we work off of that. But we can't even get another measly $1,200 check to people. Again, I shudder at the thought of, as time goes by, how bad is it really going to get? Okay. All right, next. I have some election news for you. This is from a BBC article from a few days ago, but it's still relevant. State election officials across the U.S. are reporting record numbers of voters casting their ballots ahead of Election Day on November 3rd. More than 22 million Americans had voted early by Friday, either in person or by mail, according to the U.S. Election Project. At the same point in the 2016 race, about 6 million votes had been cast. It's 22 million. Last time it was 6 million. Experts say the surge in early voting correlates to the coronavirus pandemic, which has caused many people to seek alternatives to Election Day voting. On Tuesday, Texas, a state that has relatively tight restrictions on who can qualify for postal voting, set a record for most ballots cast on the first day of early voting. On Monday, the Columbus Day federal holiday, officials in Georgia reported 126,876 votes cast, also a state record. In Ohio, a crucial swing state, more than 2.3 million postal ballots have been requested, double the figure in 2016. So as the days have gone by, more facts like this have been rolling in. I think uh, one of the more recent ones I saw from Ali Velshi from MSNBC, he said there's 17 times more votes that have been cast at this stage compared to 2016. Now, there's a couple ways to interpret this. But one of the ways is, as they point out in this article, that's just really because of COVID. So in other words, A bunch of people are doing this kind of voting because they're afraid of COVID. They don't want to get COVID. And just because you have the early voting numbers that are very high, 
does not actually mean that, like, the total number of votes this year is going to eclipse the total number of votes in 2016 or any other election year. It's just that they're coming in earlier because of COVID, and on election day there will be far fewer people going to the polls. That's one way of looking at it. Um, Another way of looking at it is that it actually is indicative of, of a really large turnout and just COVID is not a good enough explanation as to why it's so much more this time than it was in 2016. Um, I don't know which one of those explanations I find more persuasive, but what I do know is that there's reason to believe that this is a good sign for Biden, because usually election day is going to go heavily Republican, but all other forms of voting go overwhelmingly Democratic. And so as of right now, this is a good sign for Biden. Now I'm going to get later on, we're going to talk a little bit about the flip side of that, what Biden's campaign is saying, which is actually, interestingly, a little bit calls for concern for them. They're acting like, whoa, 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 all the pundits are just wrong. Like, shut up. This is not over at all. So we'll get to that. I'll give you a data point, which is probably the single best data point for Trump. Um, And it It's a banger, if I don't say so myself. It's crazy. Uh, So we'll talk about that. But there's there's no denying the fact that this is just, this is, they're shattering records, in part because of the pandemic. I do think in part because the overall turnout will probably be higher than it was in 2016. Um, But things are going to be a mess, man. I keep saying that. The best case scenario you can hope for with this election moving forward is either a a huge Biden win on election night or a huge Trump win on election night. And I'm talking about not for the substance of it or or the politics of it. I'm just talking about to avoid potential chaos because the the nightmare scenario, which we've discussed on the show previously, is this thing called the red wave, or I'm sorry, the red mirage is what it's called. And What that is, is on election day, it's going to be way more Republicans who vote in person because Republicans generally like to vote more on the day. And if you, it can look like the Republicans are doing much better than they are. But then when, by the time all the votes are cast, it's going to flip a lot heavily more Democratic. And so it could look like the Republicans win or Trump wins. And then Biden actually ends up winning by a pretty comfortable margin. And if you think this is like conspiracy talk, guys, listen, Election experts can tell you this. We've known for a very long time. Like, it's the same reason why when it was Joe Kennedy versus Ed Markey, early on it looked like Kennedy had a little bit of a lead, and then Markey overwhelmed him and won. And the reason why is demographics and, you know, uh, urban versus city versus suburban versus the word I can't say, rural, rural. (laughs) And so we know that certain areas are more likely to go pro-Trump, certain areas are more likely to go Biden. And so, like, just like you could see it within a given state, like with Bernie in 2016 in the New York primary, Hillary won all the cities, Bernie won all the areas that are not cities, and we know, we saw the trends, and we knew what it would look like when it comes in. So in other words, it's possible to have a head fake when you're counting the ballots, where it looks like, oh, this person's way up, oh my God, now they're getting crushed. You can have those big swings. And what we know is, because this is what the experts tell us, that that is very likely to happen on election day where you have the red mirage. It looks like the Republicans are doing really well, and then it'll be a giant swing in the other direction because all the 
mail-in votes are overwhelmingly Democratic. So anyway, listen, I digress from that, but records are being shattered right now. Records are being shattered. Is that potentially cause for a little bit of a sigh of relief among Democrats? Maybe. It maybe is that, if I'm being honest, but at the same time, (laughs) they themselves are saying, no, 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 do not look at it like that. Please do not look at it like that. All right, next. So this tweet that you're about to see here really blew up. And um, the reason it blew up is because it shows very clearly how the Republican opposition research on Biden, it might be backfiring. It might be having the exact opposite effect than what they wanted it to. So we know about the New York Post story on Hunter Biden or stories on Hunter Biden. Um, We know that you know, there were emails that showed him basically trying to leverage his dad's position to get paid more money. It's run-of-the-mill corruption. Unfortunately, I think it's very common in Washington, D.C. And by the way, the Trump's acting like, oh, my God, good sir, how could you? In response, the story is hilarious because Trump made $73 million from foreign investors as president. Jared and Ivanka made $135 million in 2018 alone. They absolutely do the same thing or very similar things. So anyway, we know about the story. Um, apparently Rudy Giuliani is getting more private stuff on the Bidens, namely on Hunter. How's he getting it? Listen, that Giuliani's a sketchy dude and he knows a lot of sketchy dudes. It's very possible he is working with, you know, foreign intelligence agencies, potentially even Russia. Yeah. I don't think Rudy Giuliani has a moral objection to getting dirt from anywhere. But by the way, we know the Democrats don't either. You know, they've gotten (laughs) leaked materials from foreign intelligence agencies. So he leaked something else here. I'll show you the tweet. So at Deb Drenz, at Deb D. Renz, Deb Drenz, uh, they say, pretty impressive for Giuliani to step on his own dick this bad with this attempt at rat fucking. And so she links to the New York Post story. And here's a part of the New York Post story. This is what Giuliani got his hands on and he leaked. Look at this. A raw series of text messages show Joe Biden offering fatherly comfort as his son, Hunter, lamented from a rehab facility about being a fucked up addict who can't be trusted and had damaged his dad's political career. The intimate family exchange took place on February 24th, 2019, two months before Joe launched his campaign for the White House. Quote, good morning, my beautiful son. I miss you and love you. Dad, the elder Biden wrote at 6.57 a.m. So Giuliani, with his leaked materials, this is what's run in one of the New York Post articles on it. Now, again, there are other things which I think are pretty clearly are what they are in terms of corruption. And there are Democrats who are trying to downplay it and act like that's not true. But I honestly think they're just as silly as the people who are trying to say that The Clinton Foundation was not corrupt. Of course it's corrupt. Just because somebody's a Democrat does not mean that they're not also players in the game in Washington, D.C. It's gross. Stop defending it. And don't be so naive that you think, no, it couldn't be that. That's ridiculous. So there are other things that are problematic. But this, listen, I am no fan of Joe Biden. I am, I'm really tough on the guy. And I think 
correctly. You don't get the Kalinsky seal of approval if you are a mass incarcerator and a war criminal who supported the Iraq war. I'm just not going to like you in that scenario. Honestly, I think everybody who voted for the Iraq war should be in prison because it was a war crime. It was an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us and minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians are dead. I don't take that lightly. I take that very seriously. Having said all that, when I read that, it humanized Biden. I read that and I was like, damn. This is showing a side of Biden that we don't get to see. And that side is unconditional love for his son, where his son is. He was a drug addict trying to leverage his dad's power to get paid. Just not, you know, a kid of privilege who's totally lost with no purpose. And he kind of knows that that's what he is. He can sense it. He knows, like, man, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. And what does Biden do? Good morning, my beautiful son. I miss you and love you, Dad. I know my dad loved me. He's never said anything that loving to me, ever. (laughs) Good morning, my beautiful son. I miss you and love you, Dad. Even the fact that he finished the text by saying Dad is the most, like, adorable, fatherly thing of all time. Like, Joe, he knows who you are. I'm sure he has your number in his phone. You don't need to sign it, Dad. But he did, and that somehow makes it even cuter, okay? Now, the, the intelligent criticism of this is, yeah, Joe Biden doesn't have this same kind of sympathy and empathy for other people's kids who are drug addicts. If it's somebody else who's addicted to drugs, you go to prison. You're a criminal, and he'll throw the book at you. He doesn't want to hear about rehab or anything like that. No, go to prison. You're a criminal. That's Joe Biden in terms of his voting record. And so the problem is his policy record does not match this amazing exchange behind the scenes. His policy record is if it's your kid, they go to prison. If it's my kid, they get rehab and love. So that's the legitimate criticism. That's the real line here. But is that the line that the Republicans were going for? Of course not. Is that what Giuliani had in mind? No, of course not. These guys are even bigger drug warriors than Joe Biden. They love locking people up for stuff like that. The whole point that they're, what they're trying to show here is, look, Hunter's a fuck up. And so let's just highlight the fact that Hunter's a fuck up as if that somehow can or should impact Biden's campaign. Guys, I hate to tell you, they're like now they're, trying, they're going with, with this angle to the story, which, by the way, there's no evidence for at all. I'm just going to say that up front. Zero evidence. But a lot of Republicans are trying to say, like, oh, Hunter uh, was into child porn. Zero evidence for that. There's no actual evidence that points in that direction. Are you ready for this? Let's say for a second that is true. What the hell does that have to do with Joe Biden running for president? What does that have to do with Joe Biden running for president? Answer, nothing. Whatever kind of personal struggles his son has, Those are personal struggles his son has. By the way, again, there's no evidence for it. I don't buy it that that's what is going on with Hunter. I don't buy it at all. But my point is there are lines, there are things, there are kinds of attacks which when people hear them, they go, oh, that's legit. They might not even know why they feel that way, but there are certain lines of attack where people go, you know what, you got a point. You know what, that's reasonable. You know what? That doesn't look good, does it? 
But then there are other lines of attack where, as this astute commentator pointed out, <laughs> I love this, what did she say? Giuliani stepped on his own dick this bad with this attempt at rat fucking. Yeah, that's what happened. You're leaking like a, a very private, personal, intimate exchange and acting like, ah loser. Why? Why is this loserly? Again, the hypocrisy angle is one thing. They're not pointing out the hypocrisy angle. It's almost like they're like, wow, could you believe this guy unconditionally loves his son? <laughs> like, that really does feel what it's like. Not every attack is a good attack. This is what people have to learn in politics. Sometimes you don't focus on things that theoretically you could focus on because it makes you look worse. So listen, I, this, if you think this is going to have the same kind of impact as the WikiLeaks stuff on Hillary, it's just not. It's just not. If they were laser focusing on the corruption angle, that's one thing, but they're not. I see just as much focus on the, the personal struggles of Hunter as I do on the corruption thing. So, and Trump is trying to capitalize on this, but his tweets on it are so desperate. I just don't think it's as powerful as they think it is. Trump has recently changed some of his campaign rhetoric from, oh my God, radical Joe far left. He's like, oh, God damn it, I forgot. It was the corruption thing I did in 2016. So now he's trying to do that at this late date. He's like, oh yeah, no, yep, corrupt, corrupt. So that was the better strategy, but it's too late now. I think it's too late. I mean, we already have tens of millions of votes cast. So anyway, um, what a terrible thing to highlight as if it's a burn, as if it's a gotcha. You accidentally humanized your opponents. Okay, next. I cannot believe that these words are about to come out of my mouth, but here we are. Justice Democrats released a pro-Joe Biden ad. Take a look. Everything is COVID this and COVID that. I lost my job because we're all trying to stay at home to get this under control. And our president does what? Are you f***ing kidding me? Look, maybe you don't like the other guy running for president. I get it. I don't like anyone right now. But could you do me a favor? Take 10 minutes this November and f***ing vote. Can you do that? Can you do that for me, please? Oh, that is it. Wait till your father gets home. Right off the bat, I'll state the obvious. If I was still at Justice Democrats, if I was still on the board, if I was still one of the top people there, they would not be running this ad. I'll say that up front. I would, I would argue against this vociferously. Now, the way it worked, I could have been outvoted, but I don't think I would have been outvoted. I think the other people who were there at the time would have probably said the same thing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe things have changed and evolved so much so to the point where people would have overwhelmingly wanted to run this ad, but I would be a strong no vote on running this ad. And for the very simple reason, Joe Biden hasn't earned it. Joe Biden hasn't earned it. You want to make the case he's the lesser evil and, you know, 
here's the reasons why he's better than Trump. Fair enough. I probably agree with a lot of your reasons. That still doesn't mean he earned having an, an ad from what was originally founded to be an outsider, anti-establishment, leftist, uncompromising organization. This is them compromising. And I don't like it, okay? But I'm not there anymore, so what am I going to do? Not my thing anymore. Not up to me, okay? So, anyway. Now, having said all that, how I would not have been okay with this running. As far as Joe Biden ads go, this is the kind that's more honest. It is more honest. I mean, I felt the same way about, remember when I showed you guys the settle for Biden ads? I was like, hmm, you know what? This is, uh, this is more honest. I can dig it. So in other words, I'm, I'm not mad at the, co- like if another group ran this ad, I would just be saying it's a good ad. The fact that it's Justice Democrats stings a little bit more, which is why I'm a little bit triggered by it. But um, substantively speaking, the settle for Biden stuff and this is a lot more palatable to me because I view it as just a lot more honest and straightforward and they're not BSing. They're not BSing. There's plenty of BSing that goes on when people push for Biden. And the thing that turns me off more than anything is people who smugly assert stuff and don't back it up or say, like, this is obvious. Oh, is it, is it obvious? No, it's not. It's not obvious that you got a mass incarcerating war criminal. Like, see, that's the thing, man. And I finally figured it out the other day. It took a while, but... There are people like myself who really came of age and got into politics around the Iraq war. That was such a formative thing in the development of my politics and many of the people I know and many of the people who are my age or around my age, that it was literally the main thing that brought us into politics, where we recognized, we realized, whoa, we have an illegal war, an offensive war, against a country that didn't attack us and minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians died. And we did torture. And the UN said, you're not allowed to do this, this is illegal. And we did it anyway. War crimes, it's it's a war crime. When you're young and you see that, it is such a slap in the face, it is such a wake up call as to how messed up this world is and how much work needs to be done and how we need to do anything and everything possible to stop this insanity. So it literally was a deal breaker. You, couldn't, you can't have vote for the Iraq war and get the support of my generation, the, the young lefties, as the demographic show, we're young lefties. You, it's, you're, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get our support if you support the Iraq war. That's why Obama won. He was against the Iraq war. And now we have a politician who voted for the Iraq war and enthusiastically supported it at the time, who's the Democratic nominee. And people have the nerve to smugly act like, this is easy. What are you talking about? This is easy. Is it? When I think that everybody who voted for the Iraq war should literally be in prison, is it easy? Is that what it is? When he's got the blood of 200,000 innocent Iraqis feelings on his hand, is it easy? So I think the thing that turns me off is people who are smug about it and arrogant. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is is obvious. Voting for a war criminal is not obvious. Even if you grant he's the lesser evil for sure. Still not obvious. So anyway, 
As far as ads go, this is more honest, and so I can respect it, even though I wish Justice Democrats didn't run it. Um, you know, the way that I would construct an ad for Biden is actually so, it, it's so only appealing to me that I don't think anybody else would get it. Maybe you guys would get it if you're real, like, hardcore viewers of the show who watch a lot of the videos. But, like, I have very specific issues where it's like, yeah, on that one there's no debate, on that one there's no debate. Biden would put us back in the Paris Climate Agreement. Trump obviously wouldn't. That is, that's on climate change, he's just a million times better, even though he says he's not going to ban fracking. Um, The fact that he would put us back in the Paris Climate Agreement is so much better. Iran, Trump is pushing for war with Iran. Biden would lower tensions with Iran because he's part of the administration that did the Iran deal. So much better on that one. You know, um, Supreme Court pick, I'll take a centrist any day over these far-right Federalist Society thugs, you know. So his tax plan's a lot better than Trump's, even though I don't think he's going to get any of it implemented or even fight for it. Like, there are, if I was crafting an ad for Biden, I would be so policy-specific where you make it so that there is no real disagreement, that even lefties would have to be like, well, he is right on that one, isn't he? You know what I mean? There are some things where it's just like, it's just like, duh. Like, well, of course he's better on that, you know? So if I were to do an ad for Biden, I would do something more along those lines. But um, the least bad ones I've seen would be like this one from Justice Democrats, even though I wish they didn't run it, and would be like the settle for Biden ones. Okay. The Biden campaign released something pretty interesting the other day, um, telling people, hey, you can't relax. You can't take it easy. Um, the race is a lot closer than you think, and the pundits are wrong. So this, this is what they are saying. Now, what that tells me is their internals are worse than the official polls. Their internal numbers are not reflecting the national numbers because the national numbers are a little bit more conclusive and they're really sounding the alarm here. Um, And another point they bring up is they say, hey, the polls in the swing states are not, are too close for comfort. And that's why we can't relax. Like our lead could effectively be a mirage is what they were saying. Now, I saw this line from the Biden, or Biden uh, campaign, I almost said administration. Um, at the same time, I saw this. NBC News Wall Street Journal poll asked voters if their families were better or worse off than four years ago. Look at this. Better, 50%. Worse, 34%. About the same, 14%. NBC News and the Wall Street Journal asked this in the fall of 1992. That's the last time an incumbent, George H.W. Bush, lost. He lost his reelection. Back then, only 37% of people said they were better off, 40% said they were worse, and 21% said the same. This is 
the single most powerful data point in support of Trump at the moment. Virtually everything else I see really is strongly pro-Biden. This is the single strongest data point for Trump. Now, the little cherry on top of this conversation is, do I know how to explain this? I have literally no idea how to explain this. The best I could come up with is when we did that first round of stimulus, when COVID hit and the economy was tanking, that first round of stimulus, $1,200 to people, plus the $600 extra unemployment benefit. That was, for a very brief window there, that actually really reduced poverty and made people at the bottom and in the middle self-report like, oh, this, this is great. Like, this is good. Like, I'm, I'm doing a lot better now economically than I was. Now, of course, they, you, know, you blow through that money pretty quickly. People have. Um, and so not only do we default back to the homeostasis of stuff being terrible, but now it's getting even worse, right? So my theory is perhaps that's what it is, that what they asked the question at just the right time where people still had the $1,200 payment or the extra in unemployment benefits, and that would explain it. Um, but I don't know if that's actually true. That's just the best theory I can come up with. Because when you look at the, the data, there's really no reason for people to have that belief, that feeling that things are better. Because objectively, they're not better, they're a lot worse. 215,000 dead Americans and rising from COVID. So many people have actually had the illness. The unemployment rate is still really high and climbing. We just had almost 900,000 jobs lost last month. Eight million people just slipped into poverty. There's, there's no reason for the numbers to be like that. So I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. Now, the other thing is, it, the Biden campaign is not wrong. Like, a lot of the leads for Biden in some of these swing states are like three or four points. Now, he's been up the whole time, so it almost gives a false sense of security. They're like, oh, yeah, he's been up the whole time, so why would Trump win? But three or four points, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the margin for error on these polls, a lot of it's plus or minus three or four points. So basically it could be a dead tie in a lot of these states, which means it really is a race. The only thing that should make you feel maybe perhaps a little more comfortable is that they have crunched the numbers where if you got the daily, the on-the-day pro-Trump swing like you did in 2016 in some of those states, Biden would still win. Um, but is it possible there's an even bigger pro-Trump swing on the day? Could be. Could be. You never know. So anyway, I wanted to, I wanted to bring people down to earth a little bit and show them this because the fact that Biden's campaign is sounding the alarm and going, mm, a lot of the pundits are wrong here, that definitely tells me they have internals that maybe they're up one or two points in a lot of these swing states, not three or four, like the national poll show. That mixed with this fact about are you better off than four years ago, could it happen again? Of course it could happen again. Of course it could happen again. My take as of right now, I still don't think Trump has done enough. His campaign in 2016 was genuinely good. 
his campaign this time is abysmal. Still don't think he's done enough, but, I mean, listen, when the opponent is a zombie with his brain melting, would I be surprised if that guy loses? A little surprised, but you can't be too much surprised because he's a zombie with his brain melting and he's not standing for anything. He's standing for, I'm not that guy. So who knows, but I got to give you all the information. That's what we do here on Secular Talk. And um, I guess take that information and adjust your predictions accordingly. Okay. All right, Mehdi Hassan, here we go. John Bolton, one of the most dedicated neocons ever, he finally got asked a question that he should have been asked a thousand times already, never been asked it yet. Um, he went on Mehdi Hassan's show to try and sell his new book, and this happened. So let's talk about the, the, the complex issues you said you wanted to discuss. You say in your book that unlike Mike Pompeo, who had to recant his support for the Iraq war during Senate confirmation hearings, you didn't have to uh, because you were not confirmed by the Senate as National Security Advisor. And correct me if I'm wrong, you don't have any regrets. You never have apologized for the Iraq war, unlike a lot of other former supporters of it, like Joe Biden. So what I'm wondering is, all those thousands of people who died in Iraq, all of those innocent Iraqi civilians, men, women, children, killed by U.S. airstrikes, some of them in massacres at Haditha, Mahmoudia, Balad, none of those weigh on your conscience? None of those deaths ever keep you up at night? You don't know what you're talking about. The, the Iraq War, which was the period that lasted about four weeks, uh, and resulted in the overthrow of Saddam Hussein was a brilliant military victory by the United States and other coalition forces. Uh, and that, the uh, removal of Saddam Hussein from power, was the right idea at the time, uh, and it's true today. You say it's simply not right, but the reality is hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. There was torture, millions of refugees, and that did follow from the decision by George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and others in the administration like yourself to invade Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people died. And just to go back to my question, which you didn't answer, do those deaths never, do those deaths never weigh on your conscience, was my question, which you didn't answer. No, I did answer, and I'll answer it again, since you didn't seem to listen to it. The, the fact was, after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, uh, a number of decisions could have been made in different ways. I don't believe in U.S. participation in nation building. I think nations have to build themselves. Uh, and had the United States followed through with that approach, rather than uh, engaging in extensive nation building, the outcome, I think, could well have been very different. Well, that's rich. So his argument is, I don't believe in nation building. Ha <laughs> ha! Okay. Um, had the U.S. followed through and did the war the way John Bolton is describing here, then the outcome may be different. All right, so hold on, John. You said at the beginning, oh, the Iraq, the actual war only took four weeks. 
Okay, so if we withdrew all of our troops after four weeks, you'd be cool with it? So let's say topple Saddam, four, it, took, you know, it takes four weeks or whatever, then we all get out. All the U.S. troops, contractors, all that stuff, they get out. Would John Bolton have been like, yes, that's what I want? They, I don't believe in nation building. Let them build their own nation. We got rid of the bad guy. Now it's on you. Is that what he wanted? He's lying. That's not what he wanted. John Bolton still argues to stay there to this day. So this distinction he's trying to draw of like, well, there's the war, four weeks, and then there's the occupation, and that's the problem because, you know, I don't believe in nation building. So then why are you still in favor of being there to this day? Saddam's been dead for a long time. He wants to still be in Iraq. He wants to still be in Afghanistan. He wants to add Iran to the list and topple that government. He's just lying. Not only is he in favor of these wars, he's in favor of the occupation. And it's not even true when he says, oh, the Iraq war took four weeks, and then after that it was something different. When you go into a country and stay there, overthrow the government, and then park there and occupy it for years, that's part of the war. That's part of the war. We're still at war with these countries. We're still at war in Iraq. We're still at war in Afghanistan. We're bombing eight different countries. You know, guys like John Bolton would love to add Syria to the list, would love to add Iran to the list. And listen, I have my issues with Mehdi Hassan. Believe me, I have many issues with Mehdi Hassan. But the fact of the matter is, this question that he asked him, without a doubt, John Bolton should be asked this question every time he ever does an interview from now until the end of time. Because, yes, this guy's a war criminal. It's as a direct result of his actions and his pushing of the administration and the arguments he was making behind the scenes that led to an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us and minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians died and torture was ordered to cover it up. And he doesn't care. He, 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 clearly, he doesn't think even for a second about all the people who are dead as a result of his favorite policy that he pushed for and won behind the scenes in Washington, D.C. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't care. And he's drawing these ridiculous distinctions, which aren't even true, because he's not in favor of only the four-week war and then we get out, because he still wants to be there today. And by the way, even if we did what he said here, oh, four weeks and then we're out, you can't take out the authoritarian strongman who's been leading a country for a long time, get out and then expect everything's going to be hunky-dory. No, of course you were going to have rival warring factions because power abhors a vacuum. And so you get rid of the strongman, what's going to happen? We got other, there's probably going to be internal fights in the Ba'ath Party, which is the party Saddam Hussein was part of. Um, you're probably going to have sectarian religious conflicts like Sunni and Shia because Iraq is a country that's divided along Sunni and Shia lines. I forget the exact numbers, but I think it was something like 60-40, 40% Shia, 60% Sunni. I could be wrong about that. I'm going like eight years ago off stuff I read. Um, so, yeah, if you topple Saddam and get out, internal fighting in the, in the Ba'ath Party – you know, we already, Ahmed Shalabi was the guy who we wanted to lead Iraq, and he had no popular support, but that's who we were trying to put into power. And then you sectarian violence at the same time, the, the breakdown of law and order, the looting. You know, you can't – it's insane. No country – put aside the conversation about whether or not this intervention worked, as people like to say in Washington, D.C. As a matter of principle, we don't have the right – 
to willy-nilly invade countries and topple governments. Why? Because international law has to mean something, or else how would we like it if China or Russia randomly decided, you know what, the U.S. is acting a little too undemocratically. I mean, the person who's in power now didn't even win the popular vote. So that's kind of tyrannical and authoritarian. We're going to go do regime change and put somebody we want into power. Would we be okay with that? No, 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 it's okay. It's, we're going to be in and out in four weeks, China says to us. If we're, if we're, just, we're going to be in and out in four weeks, so it's okay. It's not a war. Or if it is a war, it's, we're doing it because we mean well and we want to bring about a better country, so we're going to topple your government. <laughs> if anybody does it to us, oh, my God, we would immediately say this is tyrannical, this is authoritarian, this is evil, this is illegal, this is not allowed. We do it to them, we have the right. We just assume we have the right to do these things because John Bolton is an arrogant imperialist. So he should be asked this question nonstop. Um, His answers are absolutely terrible. He's a war criminal. And if you're part of the resistance and you're rehabilitating this guy, you are such a rube. You really are. Because, guys, these things matter. These things mean something. The Iraq War killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. That matters. That means something. When you rehabilitate a war criminal like this, what you're saying is those lives really don't matter. Those actions are... He's never even had... There's never been justice. And what you're doing is you're sending a signal, yeah, I don't care. I'll rehabilitate the worst monsters in history as long as I could try to burn Trump. And that's the thing. He's had some disagreements with Trump, so now he's held up as you know, some sort of resistance person. No. Mehdi Hassan really put into context who this guy really is, and his answers were horrendous. Okay. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have a little noticed development at the New York Times that i got to share with you guys. And then i got some Tucker Carlson stories. He's... Uh, touting the Bin Laden niece endorsement of Trump. That's hilarious. Stay right there.
son of a bitch. All right, y'all, we're back. We are back. We are back. Okay, let's talk about the New York Times and a move that they made recently. There was a little noticed development at the New York Times, and um, this dropped last week. Editor Laura Katzenberg said the following, Lauren, excuse me, some personal news. New York Times at War will be winding down this week. Uh, John Ismay and I will be supporting election coverage for the next few months and then move into permanent roles that we can talk about at a later date. So, in layman's terms, the New York Times at war section of the paper is, um, is no more. They're getting rid of it. For those of you who don't know, New York Times at war is it's basically self-explanatory, but it's a newsletter with original reporting on the experiences and costs of war. And I think I've gotten some of the like, we've covered some stories from them on here. Uh, the New York Times has a terrible record in the sense that they push, they've pushed for many of the interventions um, that we've had, and they've effectively done propaganda. But what's interesting is that oftentimes, after the fact, they will then have um, some good pieces. Like, I remember covering one. It was a, a story about a, exact, a specific family and drone deaths that occurred within the family and the fight for justice to get some accountability and some monetary payoff and how it basically fell through and nothing came of it. And so the U.S. murdered a family and there was no justice. So, But that's just one example. They've covered stuff like this. Um, they probably were one of the first to cover the b- bombing of the Kunduz Hospital in Afghanistan. There's some good work that's done there. Again, let me repeat. It's original reporting about the experiences and costs of war. Original reporting. They're getting rid of it. Now, you know, some people might hear this and say, well, you know, maybe it's a matter of necessity. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's like, what are they going to do? It's tough times. Everybody's struggling with COVID. Um, So the economy's hurting. Maybe they don't have the money to pay for original reporting. In many instances, on the ground in a lot of these places. Yeah, here's the problem with that idea. It's not accurate. The New York Times made a profit of $140 million on revenue of $1.81 billion. They've been doing well in the entire Trump era. So they're actively making a decision, one they don't have to make, to stop doing original reporting on war. As somebody said on Twitter, it's kind of crazy that the forever wars are outlasting the New York Times section on Forever Wars. What bothers me the most about all this stuff is exactly that. Just how much it's not discussed what we're doing. Not only is that not fair to the victims on the other side of this, it's also not fair to our service members. I mean, I remember what it was like at the time. People, based on propaganda, based on lies, stepping up and saying, I'm going to serve my country because we were just attacked on 
I'm going to serve my country. And we went to war. We're still at those wars. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. Thousands and thousands of troops are still there. And nobody talks about it. Nobody even talks about it. Nobody talks about it from any angle. The actual monetary cost, the billions of dollars we spend every single month that could be here, used here, nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the lives that have been devastated as a result of this, the PTSD, the suicide crisis. Nobody talks about any of this stuff. And now the paper of record is like, we're going to stop keeping a record on war. At a time when there should be more than ever, more pressure than ever, more coverage than ever, than ever, a bright spotlight on what we're doing around the world. They're like, we're going to go in the opposite direction. We're going to cover the reality show nonsense that happens here. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. Scandal over, scandals over tweets. And we'll keep bombing eight different countries. We'll have, continue with the drone warfare. We'll continue with boots on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, will continue to escalate in Syria, will continue to escalate in Iran, try to add another country to our long list of the ones that we're invading and occupying and bombing. And the crazy thing is nobody is taking a principled stand against these wars. Obama ran against them and then he continued them. He would always use the rhetoric of getting out and then we would stay. Trump ran against them. He's continuing them. He would always use the rhetoric of getting out, and then he would stay. Democrats nominally in the middle of the Bush administration pretended to be anti-war. Fundamentally, they weren't, because under Obama, they weren't. Republicans, you got some libertarian Republicans, libertarian-ish, I should say, like Rand Paul, always talks, talks about ending war, gives Trump credit for ending the wars when he hasn't ended them. They're... The sad reality is there's a bipartisan consensus in favor of these wars, and that's why they don't talk about it too much. They don't talk about it too much. Now, do they? And the media as well. Mum's the word. Military-industrial complex is getting very rich as a result of this. We have our hands on some on trillions of dollars in mineral wealth in Afghanistan, oil wealth in Iraq. We view it as very important and vital from a geopolitics perspective in the international chess game against Russia. We like having a stronghold in Iraq and Afghanistan. Smedley Butler said it, war's a racket. Now we can't even cover it in an effective way, in a real way. There's no substitute for original reporting. You know, YouTube shows like mine where we talk about war, I... There's no substitute for somebody being on the ground and telling us the stories. By the way... This is how we learned, for example, that we cut deals with warlords in Afghanistan. We were on their side because they were nominally against the Taliban, and the warlords we were working with had child sex slaves. Did you know that? We talked about it on this show. Why? Because of original reporting on the ground. There were some brave journalists on the ground in Afghanistan who learned about this, who learned that there were American soldiers who were dishonorably discharged for blowing the whistle on our allies who are child sex fuckers, who have child sex slaves. We have warlords who are criminals who we've aligned ourselves with, the worst kinds of criminals, because something, something, democracy? 
freedom? Taliban bad? Yeah, why is the Taliban bad? Because people think, oh, they're probably like, they probably like have sex with kids or something. No, that would be your allies doing that. That would be your allies doing that. Taliban's got their own set of horrendous problems with killings and basically enslaving women and no rights for them at all. There's a lot of problems there. But point is, why are we picking a side in a battle among evils in a country that has nothing to do with us where we originally said we got to get bin Laden and he's dead? Oh, that's why we got to go. We got to knock out al-Qaeda. Mission accomplished. We got to knock out bin Laden. Mission accomplished. In Iraq, we got to get rid of Saddam. Mission accomplished. So why are we still there? Wouldn't it be nice if we had somebody to tell us these things, to do the original reporting? Well, we don't anymore. So this should, I mean, again, this is a big story, but nobody's going to talk about it. And um, just, it's such, it's a slap in the face, and it shows how out of hand everything has gotten. Nothing makes sense, and it's hard to even laser focus on the issues that matter, because somehow, how the hell are we the only people talking about this? Seriously, how has that happened? Where something like endless war is just like people are just, yeah, that's, I guess we just do that and that keeps happening forever and that's it. We gotta speak up. We gotta call it out. We gotta try to end it. We need more public pressure. This is a failure at every level of society. And it's really heartbreaking because we saw it from the beginning. We've seen it unfold all the way till now. And we just come to accept it. And we really shouldn't. All right. All right, let's do some Tucker Carlson stories for the end of today's show. I got two of them for you. Tucker Carlson had Bin Laden's niece on his show. And the reason for this is basically to tout her endorsement of Trump. Not sure why you would think this is a good idea to do such a thing. But anyway, it's funny. Take a look. Nur Bin Laden is the niece of deceased international terror mastermind Osama Bin Laden. She is also a supporter of Donald Trump and has been for the last five years. Right now she's living in Switzerland. She says she's received more hate and abuse for backing Donald Trump for president than she has for being related to Osama Bin Laden. Amazing as that sounds. Nur Bin Laden joins us tonight. We're happy to have her. Thanks so much for coming on. What a remarkable, what a remarkable... I want to hear you say, is that true? You've received more abuse for backing Donald Trump than for being the niece of Osama bin Laden. Well, Tucker, as you can imagine, um, there are a few challenges that come with carrying this name, not least, you know, on a personal level, being associated to a man whose values and beliefs are so diametrically opposed to my own. Uh, But yes, as I mentioned uh, in my piece for The Spectator, Um, I find it quite interesting uh, that in certain elitist circles I've uh, encountered that uh, I faced so much um, arrogance and vulgarity for stating my beliefs, my support for the president, and um, 
it's unlike anything I've experienced before. Um, that being said, you know, while there is no justification for uh, such behavior, you know, I've been mocked and uh, yelled at at dinner tables and insulted. Um, and as I say, there's no justification for it, but I see why, you know, their understanding is, is limited because 99% of the media over here in Europe, believe it or not, it's even worse than in the U.S., but they're based on the fake news um, uh, in, the, in the U.S. and the six conglomerates that, uh, that own uh, these outlets. So that explains part of it. Well, good for the Spectator of London for publishing your piece, despite that environment over there. Very quickly, why do you support Donald Trump? What is it about the president that you like? Well, as I wrote in my uh, letter to America, which I published last month, uh, when I decided, you know, to speak up for the president, um, the list that I that I that I wrote is very very long, but there. There is one particular aspect from my perspective which stands out, and it's his foreign policy. And uh, when you look at everything he's done in terms of taking on and fighting the scourge that is Islamic terrorism, it's such a relief, you know, coming from eight years of the previous administration um, to see a 180. And um, Obama, during his time in the White House, has done so many things to make the world a, a much more dangerous place. This is amazing. So she's saying, yeah, the reason I support Trump, I mean, the main reason is this foreign policy, because he's taking on and fighting Islamic terrorism, and it's a 180 from Obama. Obama was doing the opposite. Okay. Barack Obama continued the wars. He increased the drone strikes over George W. Bush. He was incredibly militaristic. This is why people on the left were like, this is bullshit. You said you'd get us out, and now you're increasing it. Her argument is, I love Trump because Trump has a hawkish foreign policy, and I hated Obama because he didn't. Then you simply don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I don't know what to tell you. You are factually inaccurate. You are just wrong as to the history of it and what went down. And I love this thing with talking about Trump with his foreign policy because telling you, man, this feeds into my theory that Trump is a blank slate and Republicans just project onto him whatever they want him to be. So you have people like Rand Paul, who is, is anti-war, and he hears Trump do the anti-war rhetoric, and he's like, that's it. This guy's anti-war. I love him. It's great. But then you have somebody like Noir bin Laden, who's like, oh, I'm in favor of a hawkish foreign policy. You need to take on and fight Islamic terrorism. And she gives Trump credit for doing that. Wait, which is it? Which is it? Is he the, guy, is he the anti-war guy or is he the pro-war guy who's taking on the jihadists? Which is it? Those are contradictory. You have to pick one. Okay? But this is what Republicans do. Trump will say both things, and then the, a Republican voter, many of them, will just say, I'm going to pick the thing he said that I like, and I'm going to pretend that that's the thing he agrees with and will actually do and carry out. So, by the way, what is the, the reality of the situation? Trump is incredibly hawkish, just like Obama was. He's incredibly hawkish. His record is continuing the war, continuing the war in Iraq, continuing the war in Afghanistan, wants to add Iran to the list, wants to add Syria to the list, has done some bombing in Syria. I mean, Venezuela as well. I mean, 
damn near, it's an economic war being waged on Venezuela, but they would definitely try to overthrow. There was an attempted coup recently. Did the U.S. have something to do with it? Probably, probably, even though they might pretend otherwise. So he's incredibly hawkish. But it's just, it's amazing to me that this is like, that's your argument? That's the reason you support him? He wants to do more war, and Obama didn't. Obama did more war, and Trump did more war. So basically, you just like any U.S. imperialist. Funny how when Obama was imperialistic, you just pretended like he wasn't. Again, this says a lot about her and what she believes, and nothing about what's actually being done. And by the way, Tucker, who has given Trump credit for sounding anti-war, sitting there nodding along in agreement, as she's like, I love Trump because he's pro-war. So everything's so stupid. This is so stupid. By the way, when you are the son of a famous terrorist or a, or a daughter or a niece or a nephew of a well-known terrorist, this is what a, a, a teenage rebellion looks like as it goes on, right? This is what a teenage rebellion looks like. Like, you know, we've all been there. Whatever your parents believe, whatever your parents say when you're younger, like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to test my limits. And I'm going to say, I believe the opposite. Oh, wow. Aren't you, you are so impressive by doing every, every single thing exactly like every other teen in, in history, world history has ever done. This isn't special. <laughs> this is like, this is typical, like, I see what they're like. I don't want to be anything like them. You know, it's like when, uh, you know, a parent's totally straight-laced and orderly and then the kid becomes an alcoholic. Or the parent's an alcoholic and then the kid rebels and is like, I'm just going to never like that. I'm going to do the opposite. This is the teenage rebellion that carried over. Now, in her case, it happens to be a positive thing in the sense that she's not going to blow shit up. (laughs) So, like, that's a good thing. But it is funny how she went to the opposite extreme where it's like if Bin Laden was like, hey, I want to do jihad and... I want to kill the infidels, and I want to um, destroy the empire. Her response is like, then I'm for the American empire. So it's like, yeah, I think you went a little too far. If you wanted to rebel in an intelligent way, it should have been a rebellion for like, I'm all in favor of peace. Instead, she's like, no, no, I want war too. I just want the war of the empire. The American empire needs to do more killing and more war. But I love how the dynamic is she plays the victim. She plays the victim. I've gotten more shit for supporting Trump than being Bin Laden's niece. By the way, you're not a victim. It's called dissent. This is what I love, man. Oh, my God. The right loves to point at lefties and say, play the victim. Why are you playing the victim? Victim culture. Oppression Olympics. Victims. Like, they love to say that, and then they turn around, and any time they think they have anything, oh, my God. I'm being oppressed. I'm such a victim. Oh, my God. Somebody disagreed with me. Oh. Right. People are like, hey, your support of Trump is kind of dumb. Oh, how could you? It's somebody's expressing an opinion that doesn't agree with yours. I thought you were all for the free exchange of ideas. Well, here we are. By the way, it makes sense that people are more critical of you for supporting Trump than being bin Laden's niece because – you can't control that you're Bin Laden's niece. You have no agency to override that. That just is what it is. It's blaming you for a random circumstance that you had nothing to do with. You being a Trump supporter, you have agency. You could not be a Trump supporter. You can learn more about how bad he is. So yeah, people should be more like, yeah, I fault you for the Trump thing. I don't fault you for having a shitty uncle. 
Am I supposed to be blamed for what my uncles do? It's ridiculous. Why would, <laughs> why would I be blamed for what they do? That makes no sense. Um, yeah, so this is, this is what they do. This is what they do. They play the victim as they pretend like it's the left that plays the victim. And ultimately, the hilarious angle of this is you really think this is helping your candidate by touting that a bin Laden family member supports him? Like, this is, this is like the bubble of the right where they don't realize how silly they look sometimes. It's like, when the, it's like that text message that was released of Joe Biden to Hunter saying, like, I love you, my beautiful son. And the right was like, ah, <laughs> idiot, <laughs> got ya. You just made him look better. Like, you just made lefties who don't like Joe go, damn, that's sweet. Like, why are you, you don't realize that you're so brainwashed that you think anything I say for my team is going to be smart. And it's like, no, because sometimes what you do is you end up touting the endorsement of a bin Laden family member for Trump. As if, like, that's really what will swing the election. What those Rust Belt voters want to hear is that the Bin Laden family supports your agenda. (laughs) So funny. It's ridiculous how they function. But here it is. Playing the victim and touting the Trump endorsement. This is hilarious. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. Media Matters put together a compilation of everything Trump, or excuse me, not Trump, everything Tucker Carlson has said about masks. And so this is like, by extension, how serious is Tucker taking the COVID-19 pandemic? Now, interestingly, early on, there were articles about how, oh, he got in contact with Trump and he was warning Trump, this is serious, you have to take it seriously, it's not fake news, and all that stuff. He was getting credit for doing that. Then the partisan fervor bubbled up in the country, and he fell in line and started repeating the same silly right-wing talking points, making the same arguments. And so what does he really believe? Who knows? But I'm going to show you, and again, credit to Media Matters here, they spliced together at different times the stuff Tucker has said on masks. You try and make sense of this. Dissent used to be a defining feature of American life, but no more. Now we have mandatory consensus. Masks are good. Anyone who questions the utter goodness of masks is bad. What they're really telling you is that masks are magic. What appears to be a flimsy cotton face covering is, in fact, a holy amulet that protects us from disease more reliably than any modern medicine. Masks are great. They have their place. Surgeons wear masks in operating rooms. People wear masks in elevators and crowded stores, and good for them. It probably helps. We've been arguing that for six months before the Surgeon General himself recommended masks. We thought, why would masks be a bad idea? So we're not against masks. We never will be. Many schools that do plan to reopen will do so under a series of restrictions that have no basis of any kind in science. It's a kind of bizarre health theater. Students will be kept six feet apart. Everyone will have to wear a mask. Class size will be limited. In some schools, there will be scheduled bathroom breaks, et cetera, et cetera. No sports. Of course, masks work. Everyone knows that. Dozens of research papers have proved it. In South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, the rest of Asia, where coronavirus has been kept under control, masks were key. So look, 
We understand there's a shortage of masks. We understand only certain people should get them because it's a triage moment. We get it. So I was thinking a lot about this. I was trying to figure out how could he have sounded so contradictory on this. This is ridiculous. And he's flip-flopped on the seriousness of COVID as well nonstop. And, um, you know, it occurred to me one of the main reasons is he's a contrarian. And so at a time when um, our government and Dr. Fauci and everybody was like, oh, you know, maybe masks, maybe not. Maybe that's not a good idea because the evidence is maybe a little inconclusive. So don't rush out and get masks. That's not necessarily the right thing to do. At the time our government was saying that, he was like, oh, my God, that's ridiculous. There's a pandemic. Of course you should get a mask. Are you kidding me? And it's because the official authorities were questioning masks. By the way, the reason they were doing that is because they were lying because they feared a mask shortage. So they wanted to make sure the frontline workers had the masks. So they lied to the public and were like, maybe they don't work and you shouldn't buy them. So they were lying. But at the time that that was the official line coming from governmental authorities, Tucker was like, that's bullshit and you're lying to us. And I'm going to be the brave truth teller here. At that time, Tucker was correct. But then as time goes by, what happened? Eventually, everybody acknowledged the truth. Of course, masks work and we need to do it. The, The authority should have never lied. But then it's like, okay, masks work and maybe we should do like, Democrats were talking about, like, mask mandates are a good idea. We should do that because that'll save lives. The Republicans flip. Tucker flips all of a sudden. Oh, it's a bizarre health theater. And people act like masks are magic when it's really just a piece of cloth. So what changed? What changed is what the dominant line of argument was from the authorities and also from the Democrats. And he's a contrarian. Whatever they say, I'll say the opposite. So you say masks are good? Oh, you think it's magic? You think it's just a piece of cloth? Don't do health theater, bizarre health theater, and vice versa. When the authorities were saying, masks, I don't know about that. He's like, of course they work. What's wrong with you? So anyway, the point of this segment is don't be a sucker. Don't be a sucker. There are plenty of people who are doing commentary who it's either just rigidly partisan, tribal garbage garbage where all they're doing is running with the line from their team and trying to rationalize it and work backwards from their conclusion that's some of what goes on a lot of what goes on is pure contrarianism there are plenty of commentators who are just like all i do is reflexively default to the contrarian take and think i'm a genius there's a lot of that that goes on man and so just be aware of this stuff and judge things based on whether or not it's true. Look at things on a case-by-case basis, judge whether or not it's accurate, and react accordingly. But fact of the matter is, even though this guy fancies himself some sort of populist truth-teller, at least in this respect, he's a standard, run-of-the-mill, contrarian, partisan hack bullshitter. And it's obvious you just saw it with your own two eyes. Okay. All right, guys. We are done, baby. I love y'all. Everybody stay safe out there. I'll talk to you soon. Um, I was going to say something, but I'm going to bite my tongue because I don't know if they would want this to be made publicly. But anyway, um, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good one. Peace.